nonprofit founders and leaders, change makers and dreamers? Are you searching for new ways to be heard amidst the overwhelming noise and confusion of these uncertain times? Giving Heartbeat is the place to make connections and ignite sparks of compassion into forces for good and together turn unsung heroes into everyday superheroes. Conversations with dynamic nonprofit champions from across the planet reveal how they turned passion into action and obstacles into achievements. I'm your host, Donna Valente. Welcome. Over the past three decades, I've met hundreds of incredible nonprofit changemakers from around the world. It's my passion and mission to promote them. This is Giving Heartbeat. Welcome. Okay, I'd like to welcome to the Giving Heartbeat studio this afternoon, Jane Itt, internationally known teacher, lecturer, diversity trainer, and recipient of the National Mental Health Association Award for Excellence in Education. Ms. Elliott exposes prejudice and bigotry for what it is, an irrational class system based on purely arbitrary factors. Welcome, Jane. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. No problem. And if you could tell our listeners, for those who, who may not know of your work, can you please tell us about your blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment and what led to that? Yeah, the first, in the first place, it isn't an experiment. It's an exercise because what I do is create a microcosm of society in a classroom or a boardroom or a lecture hall. I separate people according to the color of their eyes and do exactly with them what we do with people of color in the United States of America on a daily basis. Now, if I do that and it's an experiment, then what we have been doing in the United States for the last 235 years is an experiment. It's illegal and unethical to experiment with people without their knowledge and without their permission. We did not ask the First Nations people their permission to come and invade their land, rape their women, kill their children, and take over their land. If that was an experiment, we should have stopped it a long time ago. So it's not your fault you call it an experiment. That's the way it is written up in practically everything in which it's written. Because many people are trying to discredit what I do. They weren't there the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. And I had to explain the killing of one of our heroes of the month to third graders in all white, all Christian Riceville, Iowa. Until you've had that exercise, until you've had that experience, don't accuse me of experimenting with children because they had never really experienced being treated unfairly on the basis of the color of their skin. They had been treated unfairly on the basis of the teacher's dislike of them because their parents didn't have money or because they came from the wrong community or because they were the wrong religion, but they had never experienced being treated unfairly on the basis of a physical characteristic over which they had no control. Religions is something you choose. Your parents are something you don't choose, but your parents choose the way they behave. The color of your eyes isn't something you choose. Now we can change the color of your eyes with contact lenses, but third graders can't, and they didn't know how to change the color of their eyes, just as children of color don't know how to change the color of their skin. They can't do it. And so in this country where we have been running this exercise for over 200 years, we have little children of color who try to bleach their skin. They use Hylex on their skin to try to bleach their skin so that they'll be the right color. Do you realize what that is doing on a daily basis to those children and their parents? Oh, my God. 
if what I do is an experiment, then what we are doing is an experiment that ought to be stopped. Martin Luther King Jr. had been one of our heroes of the month in February, along with, unfortunately, George Washington, who owned slaves, bought and sold people for money. Abraham Lincoln, who refused to free the slaves until he absolutely had to, and who, by the way, was a Melungeon. He was part black, he was part white, and he was part Cherokee Indian. We never learned that in school. We never learned that when Abraham Lincoln was young, living in Kentucky, he was called the N-word because that was the word that they used to refer to people like Abraham Lincoln. You didn't learn that in school either because we do not learn the truth in the schools in this country. We learn the things that will make us feel good about what we call America. And that's another thing I have a problem with. America is more than the 48 contiguous states, Alaska, Hawaii, and the islands off the southeastern coast of the United States. America is everything from the northernmost point of Canada to the southernmost point of South America. All the people who are citizens of those countries are Americans. It's time for us to be more careful about our language. Now, I knew those kids were going to come in the next morning after he had been killed and want to know why he was killed. And I could not figure out a way to explain to little third graders in all white, all Christian, Riceville, Iowa, why there were people ignorant enough to kill that man who was all about hope. So I decided, since I was born the year that Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt came to power, I decided I would use what I learned in the first 12 years of my life. I learned from Adolf Hitler how to separate people on the basis of a physical characteristic over which they had no control, discriminate against them, and if they didn't agree with me, kill them. Now, I wasn't going to kill any of my students, but I was going to do what I had learned from Adolf Hitler. And one of the ways he decided who went into the gas chamber was eye color. If you had a good German name, but you had brown eyes, they thought you must be a Jewish person who was trying to pass. And they threw you into the gas chamber if you were an adult or to the work camp. And if you were a child, they threw you up in the air and used you for target practice. Now, I wasn't going to do any of those things with my students, but I knew I had watched my father react to that kind of behavior from the time I was born until I was 12 years old when the Second World War ended. You need to realize that what we are doing in this country today they were doing in Germany. And in the last four years, you need to realize that because I was born in 1933 and have seen Hitlerism, what we saw in the last four years in this country was Hitlerian. This man used Hitler's policies as his model for how to govern this country. And if you don't believe that, then you need to get the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed by, his last name is Newborn. I can't remember his first name. Sorry about that. That's my age. But you need to get the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed. And in that book, you will find out that in his bedside table, in a locked drawer, Donosaurus T. Rump kept a copy of Adolf Hitler's book, The New World Order. And that is what he used as a plan for how to govern and how to keep people in line. And the major weird way to keep people in line is to keep them frightened. Divide them, conquer them, keep them frightened. And that's exactly what he did for the last four years. People have not recognized that because young people don't remember what it was like and older people don't want to remember. We want to pretend that, that we were never led down that path. But you need to know that when I was a kid, they asked Franklin Roosevelt, what are you going to do about Adolf Hitler? And his response to that was, leave that man alone. He's dealing with a problem the rest of us don't want to deal with. 
That's what he said when Adolf Hitler invaded those other countries in Europe. It wasn't until he attacked the United States that we decided we should do something about it. I have no illusions where this country is concerned. I know what we do to people of color. I know what we have done to what we call Native Americans over the last 500 years. And what the first thing we have done is absolutely refuse to admit that they were the first black people who came to this continent. They came here between 10,000 and 20,000 years ago. People from Africa explored this continent, arrived on this continent between 20,000 and 10,000 years ago. And you have never heard that in school and you never will hear that in school until we decide we've got to tell the truth. If we told the truth for Black History Month, we would have to go back six thousand years because if you haven't read the book uh nile valley contributions to civilization by anthony browder you don't realize that four thousand years before the birth of jesus christ people in egypt which is a country in africa we have moved it into the middle east so that we don't admit have to admit that all those wonderful things we got from the egyptians came to us from africans so we just pretend that they're middle easterners no egypt is a country in africa and 6000 years before the birth of jesus christ people in africa in egypt were doing cataract surgery with metal instruments before 4000 years before jesus christ was born and before there was any such thing even thought of in Europe, in Asia, or in the Americas. Now, are you impressed by that? And if you aren't, why aren't you? Do you realize, do you realize that those people from Africa, those very dark-skinned people, and they weren't dark-skinned because they were savage, they were dark-skinned because they were exposed to a lot of sunlight in Africa. So their bodies produce a lot of melanin, protect their cells from the damaging rays of the sun. That's the only reason their skins were that dark. So get over the idea that they waited till they got here to get white. No. As they moved farther and farther from the equator, their bodies produced less and less sunlight, less and less melanin, so that because they were exposed to less and less sunlight. So their bodies, their hair, their skin, and their eyes got lighter. Their brains didn't get bigger, and their brains didn't get smaller. Their skin, hair, and eyes got lighter in response to the natural environment. It has nothing to do with being worthwhile or unworthwhile, smart or dumb. Imagine those brilliant people, those brilliant dark-skinned people who got lighter as they moved farther north, managed to populate every landmass on the face of the earth without any modern technology. They managed to beat down every other homo, homo, homo human person, so no, not human, a person who looked like we were going to end up looking like. They, the Homo sapiens managed to overcome all those others. And over six million years, there were lots of others. But Homo sapiens were the ones that prevailed. They even prevailed over Neanderthals. You have to realize that the people who came here first were an, an advanced form of human being. And those people are our ancestors, yours and mine. Every person on the face of the earth has in their DNA a percentage of DNA from a country in Africa because we are all descendants of those first modern human beings from Africa. So when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, 
we're talking about every person on the face of the earth because every person on the face of the earth has in them some of that black matter. So let's just get over it. I didn't know all that at that time. All I knew was Martin Luther King Jr. had been one of our heroes of the month in February and he was dead at the hands of an assassin in April. And I had to explain that to my students. So I decided I would do what Hitler did. I decided I would separate my students according to the color of their eyes. And since I have blue eyes and most of the students in the room had blue eyes, I didn't want to, I didn't want the person in power to be the, I wanted the person in power to be a member of the minority group, which was the blue eyed group. And numerically it was the, the brown eyed group. So the, the person who was in power that day was going to be a member of the majority group numerically. So the kids who were in the, the minority, the brown eyed kids were gonna be on the top the first day. I didn't know how this would work. If I had known how it would work, I wouldn't have done it. If I had known that my four kids were going to be beaten and spit on, that they were going to be abused verbally, physically, and psychologically by their peers, by their teachers, and by some of the parents of their peers, I wouldn't have done that exercise. If I had known that my father would lose all his friends as a result of having raised the town's only N-word lover, if I had known that, I wouldn't have done the exercise. If I had known that my mother would kick me out of the family after my father died in 1991, I wouldn't have done that exercise. I really didn't want to lose my connections with my father, my family. But I did because my father was no longer there to defend me. So I was kicked out of the family. I didn't see any of my family members until 2013 when my husband died. And some of them came to tell me how sorry they were for the death of my husband. It was difficult for me to say, I understand and thank you very much for your condolences. Because I was thinking, uh-huh, I embarrassed the family and ruined your reputation in that little town of a thousand people in 1968. But now you're coming to see me. <laughs> After I've been kicked out of the family, I had a whole lot of trouble feeling a whole lot of empathy with them, for them, or about them. But we learned a lot that day. I, if I had known that no teacher would speak to me for 12 years in that system where they could be seen speaking to me because it wasn't good politics to be seen talking to the town's only N-word lover, I might have done the exercise sooner because I found out that I had a whole lot more time to teach when I was no longer included in their hall conferences. And my in internal environment, my mental environment was a lot less polluted when I no longer had to listen to their racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic, ethnocentric statements. But I didn't know that. And so before I went to bed that night, I said the only prayer I ever said at that time, I said, oh, Lord, make me, a, make me an instrument of thy peace. Oh, Lord, make me an instrument. I said it over and over like a mantra. And within five minutes after I started that exercise the next day, I learned something really valuable. Be very careful about what you pray for. You might get it. I didn't want what I got as a result of doing that exercise. But I'm extremely grateful for what I learned and what those kids learned as a result of being involved in it. I didn't know that when I told my third graders, after we had discussed what had happened, how awful it was, and I said to these little kids, uh, do you have any idea how it would feel to be black in this country? No. Would you like to know? Yeah, yeah. Would you like to do something today that will help you know that? Yeah, okay. We can pick out something about you that's different from the others and use that to to discriminate against you, to treat you the way we treat black people in this country. What can we use? Well, they suggested height, but they knew that wouldn't work. I was the only tall one in the room. Of course, in 10, five years, they were taller than I was, so it wouldn't work later on. <clears throat> they 
They suggested weight. I refused to do that. They suggested gender. I refused to do that. We do it all the time. Then somebody said, how about eye color? Let's use eye color. I said, fine. I've got blue eyes. Most of the kids in this room have blue eyes. Therefore, blue-eyed people would be on the bottom the first day. What do you mean? I said, I mean, blue-eyed people aren't as smart as brown-eyed people. They aren't as clean as brown-eyed people. They aren't as civilized as brown-eyed people. You blue-eyed people move your desk to the back of the room. So all the blue-eyed people, groaning, grumbling, unhappy about it. This isn't going to be fun after all. I thought, oh, kids, this isn't going to be fun after all. Today is reality time. Move them to the back of the room. Then I stood up in front of that group, this blue-eyed female stood up in front of that group and said, now, we've already seen that we're right about what we say about blue-eyed people. Listen to how they grumbled and groaned because they were just having to move their desks. You see, they are hard to deal with. And at that point, little brown-eyed Debbie in the front row looked up at me and said, how come you're the teacher here if you got them blue eyes? And I thought, well, you little sh-. And I thought, oh, my God, this is how it works. This is exactly how it works. This kid now doesn't have to respect me. She doesn't have to obey me. She has the right now to confront me and contradict me because of the color of my eyes. Oh, good Lord, what have we done? That child taught me more in that simple question than I had ever learned before because I had never had to truly empathize with other people. I thought I had. I was born in poverty. I thought I knew what poverty was all about. I didn't know about the poverty of judgment based on physical characteristics over which you have no control. I didn't know. And then Alan Moss in the back row stood up and said, ah, Debbie, if she didn't have them blue eyes, she'd be the principal or the superintendent. They're both brown eyed. And I thought, oh, good Lord, that's our Uncle Tom. This is our Uncle Tom. He's going to go along to get along, but he's going to argue a little bit so that he doesn't lose his status in either group. Oh, good heavens, this is what's going on. I didn't know it. How am I going to go through this day? And I watched things happen in my classroom that day that would never have happened before, had never happened before, and wouldn't have happened if I had not deliberately introduced discrimination based on eye color into my classroom. I watched brown-eyed dyslexic boys who are dyslexic, I mean, could not read, read words they couldn't read and spell words they couldn't spell on the day they were in that on the top in that exercise. At the end of the day, little brown-eyed Billy Thompson came up to my desk and said, Mrs. Elliott, where's my spelling paper? I said, what do you want it for, Billy? He said, I want to take it home and show it to my mother. She thinks I can't spell it. I can. And then he started to cry, and so did I, because I realized that he had been living down to teachers' expectations of him ever since he got into kindergarten, and they based their expectations of him on what they had learned about his older brother and his father in the Riceville Community Schools. I was just crushed because I thought, oh my God, for one day, he got to feel good about himself in the classroom. And he got to perform as he was meant to perform because I told him he was brilliant because of the color of his eyes. It was, it was ab- absolutely astonishing. During that day, I had in my classroom that year Carol, the Lutheran minister's daughter, she came into my room in February reading at the sixth grade level. She had a steel trap mind. She was absolutely brilliant until the day she had the wrong color eyes. And on that day, that brilliant child walked with her shoulders hunched as if to ward off an expected blow. She, she stumbled when she crossed the classroom. She made mistakes in reading and spelling. And I had taught her how to multiply the first 15 minutes of my class, the first day she was in my class. On the day she was on the bottom in that 
exercise, that child forgot how to multiply. I watched her disintegrate in front of my very eyes. I couldn't believe it. So I went to the teacher's lounge at noon because I needed some kind of support. I needed to talk to some adult who could understand what was happening in my classroom. I, I was going to stop the exercise at noon because it was too ugly. I could stop the exercise in my classroom. We could stop the exercise in a society. We could stop the exercise of discrimination based on skin color. But it isn't based on skin color. It's based on ignorance. My exercise was not based on ignorance. It was based on the absolute intention to lead children out of ignorance. But the exercise called racism in this country is based on ignorance, self-imposed ignorance, and our absolute determination to maintain that ignorance. I didn't know that. Went down to the teacher's lounge at noon to talk to the other two third grade teachers. There were about 10 teachers in the lounge when I went in, and I told them what was happening in my classroom the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. When I finished, the younger of those two third grade teachers, who was about 54 at the time, said to me, I don't know how I have time for all that extra stuff. It's all I can do to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, number one, they call, we call that the three R's. Reading is the only word in that group of words that begins with R. Writing begins with W, and arithmetic begins with A. At least we can stop calling the three, reading, writing, and arithmetic the three R's. The other one said to me, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. She was over 60 years old, had been molding young minds for over 30 years in that community. And she said to me, in front of the, her peers, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, I don't know why you're doing that. I thought it was about time somebody shot that son of a bitch. Nobody gasped. Nobody frowned. Nobody in all those real religious women said, Helen, God is love. Nobody said, in so much as you've done it unto one of these, my children so heavy, brethren so heavy done it unto me. None of them said, judge not that ye be not judged. I couldn't believe it. Every one of those teachers either smiled or laughed and nodded because she had expressed their feelings perfectly. And as the most senior member of the group, she had the most right to do so. And at that moment, my life changed forever. I decided that no student of any age, and I don't care how old you are, and that included my father. I don't care how old you are. You make a racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic, ethnocentric remark in my presence, and I'll come down on you like a duck on a June bug. And I will make you wish that you had never met me and you will wish that I was dead. And I'm not going to be dead for a long time because this idea is going to outlive me by many years. Make no mistake about this. Somebody has said no power on earth can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. It is more alive now than it was when he was living. You can't kill it. And the idea of one race is an idea whose time has come and no power on earth is going to be able to stop it. I went back to my classroom and I finished the day with the blue-eyed kids on the bottom, the brown-eyed kids on the top. I was afraid to go home. I was sure there'd be a cross burning in my front yard by the time I got home. Nothing happened except that some of our very good friends who were going to go on a picnic with us that night on, on Saturday at the lake called and said that one of the kids was sick so they couldn't go. So the kids and Daryl, my husband and I, went out to the lake alone, and there our friends sat at a table with their real friends and their children at a picnic at the lake where we were supposed to be picnicking with our friends. Oh, oh yeah. I found, out, I found out how it feels to be suddenly 
I felt I found out how it must have felt to be typhoid Mary. Nobody would come near her for all those years. And that's exactly what my family and I, that's what I experienced. That's not what my kids experienced. My kids experienced the worst kind of treatment you can get in a small town where people hate you because your mother is an N-word lover. It was ugly for my kids. And after three years, the junior, the elementary principal's wife, who taught at high school, came to me during a teacher's meeting and said, Jane, you got to get your kids out of this school. I said, why? She said, these teachers are trying to destroy your children. Get them out of here. So we moved from there 17 miles to Osage so that I could get my kids out of that school. Now, bear in mind, my great-great-grandfather was one of the first settlers in Riceville, Iowa. That didn't matter. I had kicked the crucifix when I taught my students that it's all right not to be white and that whiteness doesn't equal rightness nor brightness. It's time to get over it. I will never be forgiven for that in that community, nor was I ever forgiven for that by my mother. She despised me after that for the rest of my life. I was just something that she had to put up with. And she made no mistake about it. If my father was around, she was careful. When my father wasn't around, she let me know that I had, I had really ruined her reputation in that community, which I probably did. And I guess that's okay. That's, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to what my kids went through and compared to what people of color go through all day, every day in this country. As a result of doing that exercise, I was called, the White House called me and asked me if I would come in and do the exercise with members of the White White House Council on Children and Youth, a conference on children and youth, I think 1970. So I went into Washington, D.C. and did that exercise with about 150 members of that conference. They didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen, but they asked me if I would do the exercise with them. So I did it. And it was absolutely fantastic. The results we got from that, the reactions we got from that, and the things that we learned from that, it was just tremendous. Anybody who wants to know how that went needs to read the book, A A Collar in My Pocket. I wrote a book because after I'd done the thing for 20 years, I decided people were... (laughs) I was getting so many death threats that I decided one of these fools might be able to aim straight. So I better write it down so that my kids would realize that it wasn't their fault that they were being abused. It was my fault. I was the one they were getting asked. I didn't want my kids to think that they had done something wrong. They couldn't choose their parentage. And I couldn't, I wouldn't have chosen to be other than what I am, quite frankly. If I have to change what I am in order to be accepted by a race to society, Forget it. You know, what you think of me is your problem. Deal with it. I don't have to. And I won't. Anyway, so, so I wrote this book called A Collar in My Pocket because the kids have to wear a collar on the day they're on the bottom in the exercise. And I'll never forget the kid who said, it feels like, it feels, feels like a chain around my neck. Having that collar, that simple cloth collar around his neck felt like a chain around his neck. If you see the film A Class Divided, no, you see the film The Eye of the Storm, those kids are going through that exercise, and one of them, that's what one of them says, I think it's in that film, that it felt like, like he was chained like a dog, like, that's what he said, like a dog on a leash. That's how that, that collar felt around him. And then how does skin color feel to a third grade child who has been exposed to that kind of behavior pre-birth, and he will have it until after he's dead 
because of the ignorance of a racist society, like a dog on a leash. And then we have Black History Month and we start it with slavery. Come on, people. Black history started long before there was such a thing as slavery, long before any person of so-called white group came to this continent. Black history started 6,000 years ago. It's time to get over this nonsense. So I've learned a lot doing the exercise. I've done the exercise with people from the age of 5 to 85. Mm -hmm. And I get the same results every time, no matter what age, no matter what your station, no matter what your level, no matter what your gender, no matter what your sexual orientation, no matter what your level of intelligence, I get the same results with people of every age when I do the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise, which says very plainly to me, when white people, when so-called white people, and we've got to stop calling them white, we've got to call them melanemic, which is what they are. When melanemic people have to live for even a few minutes, the way we force melanaceous people to live for a lifetime, they will learn about why they had better put a stop to it. After I did the exercise on that Friday, then I repeated it on Monday and reversed it. Then on Tuesday, the kids had to write a four-paragraph composition telling who Martin Luther King Jr. was, how the child fell on Friday, how the child child fell on Monday, and what discrimination was. Then we got in a circle and we discussed what had happened. It was absolutely fantastic. Then the following day, we went back to normal. And I said to them on that day and several days later, would you like to go back? Would you like to do discrimination day again? No, why not? Because I don't ever want to make anybody feel the way I felt the day I was on the bottom. They didn't say because I don't don't want to feel that way. They said because I don't want to make anybody feel the way I felt the day I was on the bottom. And when I taught on a college campus, invariably, some some instructor, usually a melanemic female stands up and says, I just, I just think what you did was horribly dis- dis- disgusting and, and it could hurt a child badly. Don't you realize that? I say, you think that what I did with those little white kids for a day at a time, each of them went through it for one day from four, 8 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You think that is so horrible that we shouldn't do it to those children but it's all right to do it to children of color for a lifetime. Now, do you want to explain what you just said to me? She said, you don't understand. I said, I understand perfectly. And now she'll say, I don't see color. I'll say, and there it is again. When you say to a group of people in which you have a diverse group, and some of them are what we call people of color, you are saying to them, I don't see the largest organ on your body, inch by inch, which is your skin. If you can look at me and not see my skin, you are saying you don't have to see me. That's not what I mean. I don't care what you mean. What you mean is not what's important. What's important is how it is perceived. Perception is everything. If what you are saying can be perceived as racist, shut the frick up and do it now. Well, you just don't understand. I'll never forget the instructor who stood up in Texas in a college situation and said to me in front of all these students and teachers, I just look at the person's heart. I just look for the person's heart. I said, Madam, if you can see my heart from where you're sitting, you should go down to the local hospital and volunteer to be their x-ray machine. You can save them a bunch of money. She said, you don't understand. I said, I understand exactly what you're saying. You don't like to see skin color that's different from your order. Oh, so you look for the person's heart. Have you ever dressed a chicken? 
And I think she thought I meant to put clothes on a chicken. She said, I don't know. I said, have you ever cut a chicken up and gotten it ready to eat? Well, no. I said, I have lots of them. And when you cut open a chicken, you realize that that chicken is very colorful on the inside. And if you could see my heart, you'd realize that it ain't white. You understand that? She said, I don't have to put up with this. I said, you're right, you don't. She said, I'm leaving. I said, goodbye. And she left. And I said to this group of students, many of whom were appalled at my obvious not understanding her, I said, look, people, she just exercised a freedom that none of those of you who are people of color have. When some teacher stands up in front of you at the beginning of the year or the beginning of the quarter and says, when I see people, I don't see people as black or brown or red or yellow. I just see people as people. And no student stands up and says, do you see white, bitch? And those kids just howled. I said, folks, what you just witnessed is a melanemic person. I used white at that time. A white person saying she doesn't have to put up with this. And at the age of 16, a whole lot of black young men leave school because they don't want to put up with it. And we call them dropouts. What they are is forced outs. If you make the situation uncomfortable enough for them, they'll leave. And then they'll get involved with the criminal justice system out on the street, and they'll end up in prison. And then we can do with them what we wanted to do when we had them for slaves outside in the cotton fields. We'll have them engaged in slavery in the prison system. That person that just left here did something that none of you black young males can do. Get over it. Do not feel sympathy for that person. What she just proved to you is she cannot take for half an hour what you are expect to live with to, for a lifetime and to smile and nod and say thank you when she says she looks for your heart. Do not thank people for saying they don't see color. Do not thank a woman who comes up to you and says, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. When that happens, you need to say to that person, I knew that before you said it, because if you were colorblind, you wouldn't wear that shirt with that skirt. And then they'll be furious because you have offended them by saying you know they're colorblind because of the way they dress. But it's all right for her to say she doesn't see the color of your skin. She doesn't have the right to say she doesn't see the color of your skin. I see skin color. And I'm not afraid or ashamed to admit that I see skin color. And so I will make mistakes where people of color are concerned. I went to work with a group at US West several years ago in 1985. And I met with these two fantastically brilliant black women and I said to those two, after we'd been talking for a while, well, your skin doesn't bother me. And they said, doesn't bother us either. I said, oh, God, I didn't admit it, didn't I? They said, yeah, you did, Jane. You sure did it, but you won't do it again. We're, we're going to teach you how not to talk. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I am so embarrassed. She said, don't be embarrassed. You're human. That's what humans in this country do. That's how you are taught to behave. That's how you are supposed to act, and you did just what you're supposed to. I said, I'll never do it again. They said, see, learning has taken place here, Jane. And it did. And I worked with those women for three years, the best experience I've ever had. Absolutely fantastic. And I worked with U.S. West, U.S. West Direct and Public Service of Colorado, two of those companies for three years and the other company for four, because their corporation employees learned so much going through the blue eyed, brown eyed exercise, 40 of them at a time. It was, it was I couldn't do that today if my life depended on it. But Every day, I'd, I'd, well, anyway, I'd worked with them for a number of years, and we did the exercise, and it changed the way those corporations operate. Mm. Because the, those employees, the employees of color, and the gay, the members of the LGBTQ plus group, 
said, as long as, and women said, as long as you're willing to put the money, this corporation is willing to put the money into making things better for all of us, we will work hard for this corporation. Make no mistake about that. And they did. And that corporation became one of the top 100 corporations to work for, not because of what I had done, but because they had a CEO who went through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise the third time I worked with that company. And he, I didn't know who he was until after we got into the debriefing. And then I said, folks, I just found out that the guy I was calling Bluey is the CEO. I'll probably never be back, but I've enjoyed being here. And he leaned clear forward on his, with his elbows on his knees in the circle, surrounded by his employees, and said, Miss Elliott, you did exactly the right thing. I wouldn't have wanted to be treated better than the rest were. I will never forget what I learned here today. And he wouldn't give up his collar because he said, I don't ever want to forget what I learned here. I'm going to take this with me and I will carry it with me so that I will remember today. And that was a white male who was older than I was and smarter than I was and more accomplished, more accomplished than I was and was making a whole lot more money than I was and saw the worth and what I was doing because it made a difference in him. And he wanted that difference made for his company. And it was. That's awesome. It is awesome, and it's unbelievable, and nobody will believe it, and I don't care. Once again, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care whether you believe what I'm saying, but get the book, A Collar in My Pocket, and read it, and realize that we had a college professor proofread it, and he didn't proofread it right, so there are several typographical errors in there, and at one point, I spelled my son's name wrong, but better brain than Brian, I guess, So, but realize that those mistakes are in there, and somebody, the man, who, the man who proofread it said to my daughter, who had chosen, chosen him to read it, said to my daughter, I, I, I know I missed some things, but I got so engrossed in what I was reading that I forgot what I was supposed to be doing. So that's my excuse for not being able to write properly. I am not an author. Make no mistake about that. What I am is an educator. And the word educator comes from the root duck deuce, which means lead, the prefix e, which means out, the suffix A-T-E, which means the act of, and the suffix O-R, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. And that's what we have to do if we're going to kill the racism in this country. We have to lead people out of ignorance. Any other questions? Yeah, what's the best way to do that, Jane? I think. Well, the best way to do that is to turn off television. Marsha McLuhan told us, Stay away from television. It will mess with your mind. And it does. Make those kids, when they come to your classroom, be sure that they don't have a cell phone with them unless they're sick and the doctor is going to be call them, calling. And teach them to read. A 20, per, 20 to 30% of the population of the United States has, whether or not educators agree with this and psychologists don't, has something called dyslexia. They do not see words the way they're written and they do not hear words the way they're said. We have to teach teachers how to teach the specific difference that you see in dyslexic children, how to teach to it. First, you have to teach them to read. Then you have to teach them love of the language at the first, second, and third grade language level, first, second, and third grade school, school grades. You have to teach kids to love the language by using every bit of nonsense or, or serious poetry that you can find that they can understand. By the time the year was over that with the third group of students that I did, and I had 16, the principal gave me 16, a list of 16 kids in my classroom. And he said, these kids aren't going to learn to read, pass them on, get them out of here. They'll never graduate from high school. No other teacher's been able to teach them to read, and neither will you. 
And I thought, well, you miserable. I went to the I went to the office and I looked at their cumulative files. Every one of those kids had high more math scores, low reading and spelling scores. So here I am with 16 kids, different learners, not disabled learners. They were learners with who learned in a different way. And I thought, oh, this is great because I had taken a course in how to teach in Orton Gillingham phonics and how to teach the dyslexic. And I knew that every one of those kids was going to leave my room reading at or above grade level because I know how to teach the dyslexic child. So when those kids came into my room that year, that first day, they were so time timid. They were like little fawns, just just being careful. Don't watch, watch out. This is the witch, you know. Got to be careful in here. And I knew what they were thinking. I said, kids, here's the way it is. If I would give, had been given the choice of all the kids in third grade, you are the 16 I would have chosen. And they went, she's crazy. She really is crazy. And I said, and I know that sounds insane to you, but let me tell you something. I took a course in how to teach children to read. And I know how to teach you folks to read. I have that special training. I want to show you something. I put the word on on the board. I said, now, what is that? Half of them said on. A fourth of them said no. And a fourth of them said nothing. Just looked around and waited for somebody to be right. And so I put up the word saw. Part of them said saw. Part of them said was. I said, now, let me tell you something. Some of you do not see words the way they're written. And some of you do not hear words the way they're said. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. That just means you have to learn a special way. And I have the knowledge about how to teach you in that special way. What do you think of me now? And they look like, well, we can hope, can't we? And I thought, hoping is what it's all about, my friends. I'm going to teach you right now. And I started teaching. I split them into groups according to their reading level, which was terrible, first grade level for the most part. And then I started to teach them the Orton Slingerland sound pack. And I tell you, by the time they had been in that classroom, and by the time they had been in the reading class, for 25 minutes, every one of those kids had had 25 moments of success in reading and spelling the first day in third grade, for God's sake. And I said, now, see what you can do. Do you really think you can't read? No. Do you really think you can't spell? No. Do you want to learn more? Yeah, they couldn't wait to get back to the reading table every morning because now we're going to learn 17 more things that, that we didn't know before. By the end of the year, every one of those kids was reading at the fourth grade level, and so, one of them, several of them, were reading. Their independent reading level was sixth grade. Wow. So, yeah. And, and oh, God. And that happened every year. And finally, one of the fourth grade teachers, when they interviewed her to find out how awful I was, she said, the reason... The reason Mrs. Elliott's children come in reading well at the fourth grade level is because there's a huge growth spurt between third and fourth grade. And that's what happens in the summer between third and fourth grade. And I thought, oh, sweet Jesus, is that the best she can come up with? Oh it's a huge growth spurt. I just when I heard that, I started to laugh out loud and people looked at me like, well, that's not funny. She's serious. I, I know she is. That's what's funny. I mess the other two third grade teachers' students didn't show a huge growth spurt between third and fourth grade. Maybe they were. Maybe there was something wrong with them. I don't know, but mine did. Probably they spurted to get out of third grade. Right? It was. I tell you, teaching in that system after that exercise has has provided me with some of the most laughable moments in my life. Hmm. Some of the saddest for my kids, no doubt about it. 
but some of the most laughable moments in my life because I'll never forget the first grade teacher who, when I told them I wanted to bring in somebody to teach us about the disabled learner, said, I have my degree. I know enough. I don't have to learn anything more. And I laughed in her face because I thought, oh, how I envy you. I wish I knew enough. I still don't know enough. I'm reading. Two, I finished one book this week and I'll now finish the next one. I read two or three books a week because I don't know enough. And I know that there are people who write books. Oh, my Lord. If I knew as much as I need to know, you couldn't stand to be around me. Some people can't stand to be around me anyway. But it's not because of what I know. It's because of what I say. And I say that if you are ignorant enough to believe in the myth of three races, that is self-imposed ignorance. You ask me what we can do? Teach children to read. And in every home, have half an hour of unsustained silent reading every day. Insist that your kids bring books home from school written at their reading level or a little above, and they read those books every night during the week. Because kids learn more from parents than they do from teachers. Make no mistake about this. If I had had to depend on teachers to learn what I needed to know as a human being, I'd have been sorely, sorely, sorely disadvantaged. I listened to my father, and my father knew more when he was born than I knew when he died. Hmm. I listened to my father, and I'm most fortunate that I did. But then, after he did the exercise the second time, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed it, and I took that film up to where my folks lived and showed it to my mother and my father. My father was 59 years old at that time. He'd been a farmer for years, had get, had um, produced seven children, lost one. He'll, he never forgot the one that he lost. She was his favorite. She was absolutely gorgeous at the age of three and a half, and I'll never forget that, and neither did he. And I never saw him cry after my sister died until I showed him that film of those little third graders going through that exercise. And when it was over, this 59-year-old father stood up, farmer, stood up, took his red handkerchief out of the back pocket of his bib overalls, blew his nose, wiped his eyes, and said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Oh. Yeah, nobody, nobody, no psychologist, no psychiatrist, no educator can tell me that what I did was wrong after my father said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. He saw the worth and the meaning in that exercise, and he never forgot it. Wow. So is there anything that you'd like to tell our listeners going forward about how they can work to, to try to break down racial discrimination in their own lives they might not be aware of? or They are aware of it. Don't tell me they aren't aware of it. And don't let anybody else tell you that this is all about unconscious bias. It's not about unconscious bias. It's about bad education. Mm. And it's about the fact that you are not born a racist. There is no gene for bigotry. Racism is something you have to be carefully, carefully taught. And we start teaching it prenatally. And we don't stop with you after you're born, after you're dead. Make no mistake about that. Every person who watches this, if anybody does, and they probably won't after the first five minutes, every person who watches this, who is still watching, needs to know that racism is something you learn. Anything you learn, you can unlearn. You can unlearn your racism by going to my website, Download, if you don't do anything else, download the printed learning materials that are there. The first is a set of typical statements that white folks make that think they aren't racist. 
read through those typical statements, and then decide never to make one of those statements again as long as you live. Then And then read through the clarifications. Here are the reasons. Here are the But this is the way, way people who are on, on the receiving end of those statements hear them. Mm-hmm. Totally different from what you think you're saying. Doesn't matter what you meant by what you said. What matters is how it is perceived. And if what you're saying can be perceived as racist, you have enough words in the language that you can find another thing to say that doesn't have to be taken as racist. Now, Mr. Cuomo is un- in trouble right now because he didn't have to stop and think because he's a tall white male and tall white males don't have to stop and think before they behave in objectionable ways. But he had a whole lot of young interns, female, who thought that they were doing themselves and him a favor by not saying, keep your hands off me, you silly old man. And until young girls are able to say, don't lay a hand on me and don't tell sexist, don't make sexist remarks in my presence, because if you do, I will file a grievance against you. Know that going in. If women, if young women would simply do that, but they're afraid they won't get the job. So we'll put up with anything to get the job. How important it is, is it for you to get that job? Will you, will you sacrifice your principles for it? Because if you will, if you'll sacrifice your principles for that job, what else will you sacrifice your principles for? Will you allow somebody to kill somebody else because of the ignorance of racism? We've been doing that until George Floyd was murdered in front of our eyes. And now we won't do that anymore. Suddenly, we realized that black people weren't lying all those years. And suddenly, we're going to say, no, we won't put up with this. We should have said that a long time ago. But now we know. So now we can do better. We can no longer deny that we know it's happening. We know it. We have to. First thing you do is turn off the television. Second thing you do is go to my website, download those printed printed learning materials, read the typical statements, decide not to do them anymore after you read the clarifications, then read the commitments to combat racism. 18 things that you can do in your own lifetime, in your own house right now to combat racism. Because racism is something you choose to be or not to be, that is the question. To be racist or not to be racist, that's a choice you make, and you can make a different choice. My granddaughter says to my great-grandson constantly, make good choices. Well, he's two years old, three years old, and he doesn't know what choice means. But she's old enough to make good choices, and she's old enough not to let people make racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic remarks around that kid. That is a step forward. Watch your language. Then go to go through those typical those commitments. Do one of them. Go up and check those that you agree, yes. Those that you've never done, no. Circle one that you check, no. Do it for a month. Put the date beside it and do it for a month. At the end of the month, come back, read the, the choice you made, write down some of the things that you learned by doing it, and then circle another one and do it for a month. If you go through those 18 and do every one of them, it'll take you a year and a half. And at the end of a year and a half, you will be a whole lot less racist in your attitudes and in your beefs and in your behaviors. And you will be a whole lot less willing to accept racist behaviors in your presence. You have the right to demand that people not make racist statements, sexist, ageist, homophobic statements in your presence. You choose your friends. You can choose people who don't do those things. And you can say to your friends when they do them, you know what you just said was racist. I don't want that said around my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. So I have to make a choice. And you have to make a choice. You can either choose to be around me and give up those statements, or you can choose to save those statements and not be around me. And they make the choice, invariably, to not be around me because they do not want to change those behaviors. 
Those are the accepted behaviors in most small towns and in most neighborhoods in cities in the United States of America. And we can deny that until health reaches over. But look what has happened to this country in the last four years. We have made gigantic steps backward where acceptance of those who are different from ourselves is concerned. For four years, we have been encouraged to be racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic, ethnocentric by a person who is a case of arrested development. If you want to know how to stop some of this stuff, get the book TA for Teens. It tells you it's a book for teens written about transactional analysis. And when you read the statements on each of those pages, there's a page in which the, the statements that we make when we're in our child ego state, then there's another when we're in our parent ego state, and there's another when you're in an adult ego state. Read those statements. And then when you listen to people talk, you can tell which ego state they're in. You don't want to associate a whole lot with people who are in their child ego state and not a lot with parent ego state. What we want to do is get people into their adult ego state so that they relate to one another as adults relate to one another instead of relating to one another as parent to child or child to child. Transactional analysis is one of the most valuable things I have ever learned, and I haven't learned enough about it. But if you just get TA for teens, I think it was written by Eric Byrne, but I'm not sure. But if you look up Eric Byrne, B-E-R-N-E, you'll find some of the things he has written about transactional analysis, and it is absolutely brilliant as far as I'm concerned, because <laughs> listening to Donosaurus T. Rump every time he'd open his mouth, I, I would think he's in his child ego state. Now he's in his parents' ego state. The only time he was in his adult ego state is when he was reading off the teleprompter. And at the end of him, so many, and that'll be great. And then he slid right back down into his child ego state again with, and that'll be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> I think just, just read the prompter and let somebody keep you in your adult ego state for another five minutes of your life. But he couldn't do that because that wasn't in his nature. You have to, yeah. When you, when you read those, those statements, you'll walk around and your ears will be more attuned to people around you than they have ever been before. And you have to bite your tongue to keep from saying, look, boy, give it up. Because when you're in your, when you're in your child ego state, you're acting like a boy. And that's one of the reasons when I have to, somebody calls me and asks me, what's the name of a book or whatever, and I have to, my, my email, and I tell them B-L-I. They say, do you say, is that B as in boy? I say, no, it is not B as in boy. Do you know any other words that begin with B? Well, yeah, we'll use one of them because boy is the word that we have used to infantilize black males for the last 230 years in this country. Can you think of another word that begins with B? And then they'll say, well, I say, try beautiful. All right, B as in beautiful. Good, thanks for you. Thanks to you. And so, but you see, you have to, I'm an educator. I'm constantly educating people because they have been conditioned and indoctrinated for so many years by the time they get to me that they can't open their mouth without me saying, what did you just say? Do you realize what you just said? Well, I just tell my students, I don't see color. <laughs> and some smart kid is going to stand up and say, what color is your car? And it's going to roll right out of your mouth. And they're going to say, oh, you see color in cars, but you don't see color in kids. Looks to me like you're kind of fussy and where, where you see color. And you're going to kick that kid out of the room. And he could get suspended from school for three days for trying to teach you what you should have known before you opened your mouth. 
okay, we can decide to change the level of racism in this country by changing the level in ourselves. Not in everybody, but just one person at a time. Each of us could take the responsibility. First, the first thing you have to do is teach the teachers. Now, I didn't say educate the educators. I said teach the teachers. There's a big difference. Teach the teachers that it's time to stop teaching the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, which aren't three R's, and teach them the three R's of rights, respect, and responsibility. If you teach every third grader that every third grader has the same rights as all the other third graders have, and every person is responsible for respecting the rights of every person in that classroom, and you reinforce those who respect one another's rights, and you correct those who do not respect one another's rights, and you say to them, you don't know how to behave on the playground, you will not be on the playground until you can show me that you know how to respect the rights of every student on the playground. Now, if somebody had said that to one of the other third grade teachers, my kids wouldn't have come into the classroom one day after we had done the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise and said, Mrs. Elliott, that Mrs. is a racist, and she shows it, and she doesn't like that group. Whenever they do something wrong, she gets on them. When we do the same thing, she doesn't do anything. She's discriminating against those kids, and somebody ought to tell her so. I said, I'll take care of it. I'll talk to the principal. So I talked to the principal. He said, I realize that, and I'll talk to her. So he talked to her. She had to be taught at the age of 62 not to discriminate against students on the playground because Elliot's kids recognized discrimination when they saw it and they called him on it. And when my kids looked at junior high, I'll never forget the junior high teacher who came down to the teacher's lounge and my sister was substituting at that point, came down to the teacher's lounge and was just furious. Well, what's going on? Well, the worst thing that happened in my classroom, well, what happened? I used the N-word. She didn't say N-word. She said the word and one of my students stood up and said, we don't use that word in this school. And if you're going to use it, I'm going to go out in the hall until you stop. She said, what would you have done? My sister said, well, I guess I'd stop using that word. Why, that had never occurred to the teacher that she shouldn't use that word. I mean, that's the word she used every other year. Why should it be different this year? She stopped using that word because my students taught her that that's one word we don't use. And they taught that to all the rest of the third graders. They did a they did a, a, a psychology student professor from the University of Northern Iowa came to Riceville one year several years after he had been doing the exercise and asked the superintendent if he could do an attitudinal survey with the kids in the third fourth fifth and sixth grade and the attitudinal survey was to measure the amount of racism in those kids and the superintendent said he guessed that would be all right. So he went to St. Ansgar, which is a nearby community, and just exactly like Riceville, practically, did the same survey there. He called me after he got done. He said, Miss Elliott, I got something to tell you. I thought, okay, what is it? He said, well, the kids in, the Rice, in, in your class who had you for a teacher were much less racist in their responses to this survey than were the other kids in the Riceville school, those who didn't have you for a teacher. I said, well, that's a plus. He said, it gets better. The kids, all the kids in the Riceville school, third to sixth grade, were less racist in their responses to this survey than were all the kids in the, little, in the St. Ansgar school. He said, what this proves is, not only do your former students remember what they learned, their attitudes are rubbing off on their peers. 
He said, this means if we could change the attitude of a third of the people in any community, we could change the attitude of the community. I said, well, I should be grateful for that, shouldn't I? He said, no, your community should be grateful for that. A couple of years after that, the kids in daycare, Barack Obama was, be, was running for the presidency. The kids in daycare elect voted for Barack Obama. And the person who was running the daycare center called my sister and said, Mary, you've got to know something strange happened in daycare today. What was that? My kids voted to elect Barack Obama. She said, what your sister did still makes a difference, even to these kids who never knew your sister. And I thought, oh, my God, if I can reach, if I can reach three and four-year-olds, if we can change the behaviors of three and four-year-olds, when they go to school, they can change the behaviors of their teachers. That's awesome. And they can, yeah, it is. It is awesome. Do not tell me that you're born a racist. Do not tell me that you can't learn different because you can. My father did at 59. I did at 33. My kids did, oh my God, but they got, they learned the hard way because they got the abuse. They found out how it feels to be discriminated against on the basis of a physical characteristic over which you have absolutely no control. In their case, the, the physical characteristic was being born of the wrong mother. Oh. Yeah, 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 that's the way it is. And my, my husband found out how it feels to be told that he ought to control his wife. Can't you control your wife? And my husband said to them, you try. You try to control her. So you thought, see, I think that would work. He never tried to control me, <laughs> except when I wanted to be controlled. And then, wow. Anyway, getting right along. So you've been, you've spoken at over 350 universities and, and done that, the exercise. Is that, did I read that correctly? I've spoken at that many. I've done the exercise at many, but not every one. Wow. That's awesome. I have something that um, I don't know if, if you've thought about this, but I was thinking about this recently and, and just how racism is kind of baked into the, the, this country. And I was thinking about the census and, and I was thinking, why, why do we need the census to, to call out race? And like, what is the reason for that? It, it, we, would, we wouldn't need it if, if we treated people equally or equitably, we wouldn't need those questions on the census make no mistake about that but we need those questions on the census because we have underfunded people of color in this country for 230 years if they are going to get proper funding the same kind of funding that we give to people who are melanemic we wouldn't we if that were happening we wouldn't need those questions on the census but we have to fix this thing some way individuals aren't going to fix it the government could fix it if we chose to state local federal governments could fix this if we chose to and the census the way it is worded on the census should be a way to fix this but instead those figures oftentimes are used to perpetuate the problem to protect the status quo that's unfortunate that it's used that way and several a couple of young women called me several weeks ago several months ago now and said to me one of them said to me from now on when i have to fill in a form and it says race i'm going to put human I said, good idea. What are you going to put if it asks for your color? And one of them said, I'm going to put mocha. The other said, I'm going to put chocolate. I said, good thinking. That's exactly the thing to do. And then somebody has to call them and say, don't you know what color you are? And they're going to say, I'm the color of mocha. And the other one goes, I'm the color of chocolate. You have a problem with that? Mm -hmm. And then the person who is going to call them is going to have to come up with another word on the census. And it's going to have to be, you want to put color? 
You don't have to put, you don't want to put white because you can look at me and you can see that my hair is white, my shirt is white, my skin is not. The whites of my eyes are white, unless I'm sick and then they're white striped with red. But this is not white. There is no skin color white unless you are an albino. And there are very, very few albinos in the United States of America. If you want to learn what happens to albinos in Africa, Google Tanzania. And then what, read what happens to albinos in Tanzania, and it will make you sick to your stomach. Because what happens to them today in Tanzania is what has happened to people of color in this country for the last 235 years. Hmm. And, there, and there are damn few people in this country whose skin is black. I have seen three in my lifetime. I can always tell where that hair stops, which is black, and that skin starts, which is a shade of brown. We are all shades of brown. Some of us are very, very dark brown, but very few of us are black. It's time for us to get rid of the words white and black to describe people because, number one, people don't come in those two colors. We come in shades of brown. And number two, if you look in the dictionary, any kid looks in the dictionary, it looks up white. It says pure, saintly, clean. Mm. Look up black and it says savage, dirty, ugly. Now you have a teacher stand in the hall and say, look at that little black boy. He's one of my little black boys. And some teacher ought to come upside her head and said, say, wait just a damn minute. Do you mean the dictionary definition of black? Do you mean the diction the definition that we use in this color where black is concerned? Or in this country where the color black is concerned? Do you realize that in in the westerns the good guys always wore white hats and the bad guys wore black ones? Do you realize how ugly that word in what ugly ways that word has been used over the centuries? Do you really want to call that kid black when he is dark dark brown? Is there some reason you can't call him dark brown instead of black? Because I can see where his hair stops and his skin begins. Now, are you only going to call people colors by the color of their hair? Because if you are, then I will let you call me white-haired. But you'd best not call me white-skinned because I'm not. Now, people in the black community, what we call the black community, particularly the millennials, are furious with me for saying that. But we will never solve this problem as long as we use two polar opposites to describe people. And that's what we're doing. White is the color of goodness and purity. Black is the color of savagery and evil. And also in the dictionary, it says black are those people who come from Africa. Well, then that's all of us. That is all of us. We've got to get over the idea. Native First Nations people say that they sprang out of the ground. No, they didn't. They got here. Their ancestors didn't spring up out of the ground. They came here the same way my ancestors did, across the ocean. And some of them from South America, up through South America, and up through Mexico, and into this country before there was a wall. <laughs> and they'll be here after the wall comes down. I remember Donosaurus T. Rump saying, we're going to build a wall across the southern border of this country so that those tan-skinned people don't come in here because brown-skinned people reproduce too rapidly. I thought, oh, my God, there it is. Doesn't anybody realize what he's saying? He's saying that somebody has told him about the book, The Birth Dearth, 
that was written by Ben Wattenberg in 1987, in which in the first paragraph, this brilliant Jewish man who was a member of the American Enterprise Institute and was absolutely brilliant, wrote this book in which he said, the number one problem confronting the United States today is there are not enough white babies being born in this country. If we do not change this and change it rapidly, this country will no longer, will new, white people will be a numerical minority and this will no longer be a white man's land. That was the first paragraph of that book. He got so many angry responses to that that he rewrote the book. And the second one he wrote has all kinds of tables and graphs and charts that show the statistics that prove that what he was saying were right. He obviously didn't remember that Benjamin Disraeli said, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can use statistics to support whatever ignorant statement you make. All you have to do is enough of them use enough of enough statistics and you can snow people right into the ground. And that's what he did with his second book. But I had three copies of his first book and I loaned them out and they never came back. Hmm. So then I bought a copy of his copy of his second book and it's not the same thing at all. It's just full of statistics that prove what he's trying to say without coming right out and saying it. And in the second paragraph of that first book, he said, there are three ways we can solve this problem. One, we can pay women to have babies as they have been doing in Western European nations for many years. However, and these are his words, not mine. It, we would have to pay women of all colors to have babies and we don't want to do that. He said, the second thing we could do is change the number of legal immigrants who are allowed into this country every year, increase that number. Once again, he says, however, the majority of those people wanting to come to this country today are people of color. So we don't want to do that. He said, he said this, this sounds like nobody would say these things, but he did. He said the third thing we could do is remember that 60% of the fetuses that are aborted every year are white. If we could keep that 60% alive, that would solve our birth dearth. Now, Ben Wattenberg gave advice to presidents of the United States. I suspect that he was the one who told Mr. What's his name? Everybody's favorite. <laughs> Yeah, am I talking? Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's the one who said, we're going to go back to the 50s. Remember who that was? Talking about a shining city on a hill. Washington was a shining city on a hill. Oh, my God, you must remember. He was the actor. Reagan, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, yes. He said, the United States is a shining city on a hill. And I thought, build on the skulls of people of color, you silly ass. He said, we want to go back. We're going to take you back to the 50s. 50s were great for men, white men. Weren't worth a damn for any of the rest of us, but they were great for white men. So here comes our next little fool. <laughs> and he says, we're going to put a wall on the southern border of the United States so those brown-skinned people don't come in here. And I thought, oh, my Lord, somebody talked to him about Ben Wattenberg's book. Then he said, and we're closing these Planned Parenthood clinics. And he has done that. He closed most of the Planned Parenthood clinics. He arranged for them to be closed because that's where white women get abortions. He seemed to forget that white women get a lot of things in Planned Parenthood clinics beside abortions. They get tremendous services that they can't afford if they have to get them from the local medical society. It is time for you all to realize how badly you've been had for the last four years and to get off your knees because your legs, you got feet, 
and your legs are made so you can walk. Try walking on your knees. You can't do it very well or for very long, but you can walk long distances on your feet to prove that you are not going to put up with this by marching in protest of the kinds of things that have been happening in this country for the last four years. It shouldn't have taken George Floyd's death to wake melanemic people up to what's really going on, but it did. And by that being true, we managed to absolutely wipe out the fact of the thousands of people of color that we killed before George, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Thank God for protesters. And most of those people were millennials who came out in vast numbers, all colors, all religions, all genders, all sexual orientations, all ages came out and said no more. We've had enough now. Now we see what's going on. We're going to put a stop to this. And that's the reason. Those people voted. And those brown-skinned people saved democracy in November and then again in January. They saved this democracy. And we will be indebted to them for a very long time. Imagine if they hadn't come out to vote where we'd be today. We would have another four years of Donosaurus T. Rump. be a nightmare. Jane, is there anything else that you would like to talk to our listeners? You've given us a lot of time today and I appreciate it so much. And I, I know we all have a lot of responsibility going forward to be vigilant and, and not put up with stuff. We, we have the responsibility to be active. Be active. Get off your polyunsaturated fatty acids and be active. Don't just talk about it. Don't, don't just, you know, sermonize about it. Don't just talk to people and say, well, I'm sure sorry this is. No, no. You say it's sorry it's happening, but you live in a neighborhood where everybody looks like you. You say you're sorry that it's happening, but you allow the town council to make them. And, and, and here's another way you can do. Read the book, The Color of Law. Get the book, The Color of Law, and read it this week. And you will find out that most of the most of the separation according to color that we have in neighborhoods and com in communities in this country are the result of people writing laws who didn't know that there was more that there's only one race they were educated the same way you and I were they were educated to believe in the rightness of whiteness they were educated for longer than I was because they were in school longer than I was and the longer, in, the longer you stay in school, studies have proven that the longer you stay in school, the more bigoted you become. Because the more years you are reinforced in what you learn K through 12, and except in science and math, what you learn in social studies and what you learned in the reading program, most of what you learned there was racist. You need to realize that there were, there were women and men of color in this country who made this country possible. You need to remember that the first person killed in the Revolutionary War was a black man, Christmas Attic. Did you know that? And if you didn't know it, and if you do know it, you're surprised. I'm, a su I'm surprised. And if you didn't know it, I'm not surprised because we don't learn those things. I, st I stopped at a stop sign at a red light in Osage, Iowa. And there beside me in a big truck, vroom, 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 the guy's gunning his motor because he's on, he's on schedule. And I look up at him and I smile. And he grins at me like, oh, you think I'm cute, don't I? And he doesn't realize that I'm thinking, fool, 
if you knew that you were, your behavior was being di dictated right now by the invention of a black man, you'd run that light. I know he would, and if he knew he if he knew that, he'd go around the block to avoid that light. If somebody would tell him that those big boots that he puts on every morning that make him feel so great when he gets out of that truck, he wouldn't have those if it hadn't been for the invention of a last a, a mechanical last so that you could sew shoes together mechanically. He wouldn't have those boots if it hadn't been for that invention that was done by a black man. We wouldn't have a calendar if it hadn't been for what happened in Egypt. And those people were dark skinned. They were, put, they were in Africa. If you would go through a list of all the things that we got from Africa, teachers would have to change practically everything they say in the classroom. Hmm. It, would be so, it would be so difficult to teach if you had to teach the truth. It's easy to teach the lie. And the idea of more than one race is a lie. If we would just do this one thing, just this one thing. You see this map? Mm -hmm. Does it look like the map you've used, you've been accustomed to seeing? Yes. See Greenland hanging down here like a great big ripe plum. See poor little South America? Yes. Poor little Africa. Greenland's bigger than both of them. This is the map, the Mercator map that is used throughout the schools in the United States of America. And at the bottom of the Mercator map, not on this one, but on most of them, there is a legend. The last sentence on the legend says, South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland. Hmm. That's what it says on the bottom of the Mercator map. But this is what the map shows. <laughs> According to the, your social studies teachers, the equator is a line halfway between the North Pole and the South Pole, right? Which would put the equator right about here. Hmm. Well, any where the equator is on this map, the equator is clear down here, clear down here where it belongs. Huh. The distance between the lines of latitude at the top of the map is this much. In the middle of the map is this much. Yeah. So it makes the it makes the countries in the northern hemisphere bigger than the countries in the southern hemisphere. Now, if you use the Mercator map, you can't say the word hemisphere because hemi means half. Right. A hemisphere is half a sphere. So the equator has to be halfway down this map. This is the map that we use to teach geography in schools all over the United States of America. There is a better way. And surely, surely you have seen this. Come on, come on over here. It's a little shy. This map is, doesn't want to be destroyed. This is the Peters projection map. Have you never seen this map? I don't think I have. Oh, for God's sake. See Greenland? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Look at South America. Look at Africa. Africa is 18 times as big as Greenland. Wow. This is called education. Hmm. This is called indoctrination. Right. On this map, yeah. On this map, the equator, I can't find it, but it's halfway between the North Pole and the South Pole. Countries of the world are the right size on this map. They're dis their shapes are distorted, but their sizes and their locations are right. Everybody needs to see this map. And you can get this map from capital O, capital D, capital T, maps.com. Okay. And you write to these folks and you tell them you heard about this map or you call them or you send them. You can call them. You want to call them off their telephone number? Sure. 800-736-1293. Okay. Call them and tell them you want copies of this map. You can get copies of this map 
room size, wall size, desk size, plant um, placemat size. I bought placemat mats of this of this map for my kids many years ago so that when them, they eat their breakfast in the morning they saw the world the way I wanted them to see it instead of the way the teachers wanted them to see it so they were not the most popular kids in any classroom because my kids kept saying why are we using this dumb map <laughs> they, they couldn't think of a nice way to say it because they're too much like their mother and not enough like their father but just take a look at this map and see what you think of it I'm going to order that Gene yep yep it, 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 and if you put it in your office, people will walk in and they'll say, where the devil did you get that? And why do you have that map in here? And then you say, let me tell you what that's all about. Well, well, Jane, I think I've kept you long enough and, and I want to um, wrap it up now. But I just I'm so happy we had this chance to talk and, and that you were able to share some of your learnings over the years with our listeners. And uh, I thank you so much for your work. And um like to just ask if you had one like, or just want to say goodbye or, or anything to add go to my website and read every book on the bibliography that is listed under race okay. because learning about this is our responsibility and you can't say nobody ever told me if you are old enough to read and you haven't read those books that is what we call self-imposed ignorance and every person who has read those books is going to say to you, did you read? And you're going to get that blank look and say, I, I think I did. No. Did you read where he said? And then you're going to bite your tongue and you're going to wish you had read it. And if you can't think of anything else to read, read this, The Four Agreements. Have you read this? I have not. Oh, my God. Read The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. The Four Agreements are... <laughs> This is one of my favorite books. The first agreement is be impeccable with your word. Don't lie. The second is don't take anything personally. That's the hardest. The third is don't make assumptions. Don't assume that everybody thinks the way you do. And the fourth is always do your best. My father could have written those four. He never said it that way. But he said, never tell a lie. Stop taking stuff into yourself. You're not the only person around. Don't assume that you know what they're talking about and always do your best by God. They say, you know the difference between right and wrong. Now do the right thing, God damn it. And that's what you did. He could have written this book. This is an absolutely beautiful book. And here's another book that everyone needs to read. And this won't take you very long, but you'll never forget it. Famous black quotations. One of my favorite famous black quotations is violence is black children going to school for 12 years and receiving a year's worth of education. J. Julian Bond and Gwendolyn Brooks said, truth tellers are not always palatable. There is a preference for color bar for candy bars. Hmm. Yeah, people would rather I would say things nicely. I don't have time to say things nicely anymore. I'm too old to put up with it. And Tony Brown said, we are a black gold mine. And the key that unlocks the door to these vast riches is the knowledge of who we are. I mean, who we really are. Blacks are a vast gold mine that we have, re we have rejected. And Lerone Bennett said, violence always rebounds, always returns home. Think about that. It's just, ah, it's just, 
it's just a marvelous book full of really brilliant things. And here's another one that's not on my, my list. Stuff that needs to be said. This man is a minister. His name is John Pavlovitz. Everybody needs to read this because he is totally honest in his description of how he sees the world and how he sees really important things like religion. But the best thing that I found in this book was for those who are grieving, the day I'll finally stop grieving. My husband died eight, almost eight years ago now. My son, two and a half years ago. And I read this book just last year. And then this book, he says, he's missed his father for four years. And finally, he decided that he knew how long that would go on. He said, I decided that I'll stop missing my father the day I die. And that's the way it is. I'll stop missing my husband the day I die. But one day this week, all of a sudden, I thought, I'm remembering the good things all of a sudden. Oh, good Lord, it's finally happening. But this, this book helped me to see that grieving is something we all do. But you need to know that the day will come when you remember that person and think of him as how much fun you had and how fantastic it was while he was here and the fact that it's all right to miss him. You'll stop missing him the day you take your last breath. It's just a book full of things that need to be said. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm so sorry for your losses. I mean, I know it was a long time, years ago, but it obviously still... It was yesterday. It was yesterday. It was yesterday. But it was yesterday that he smiled and laughed and sat around and put on his shorts the minute he got to California and relaxed and was just, and it was wonderful when we traveled together. And it was wonderful when we'd get calls from people that said he was a lucky man. And then sometimes he thought maybe he was. The rest of the time he wasn't quite sure. Oh. But that's okay. That's okay. It was, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's living, is, living is worth the effort. And for those who say, isn't it awful to have gone through all this? no. No, no, no. The worst thing that can happen to you is to live a meaningless life. Yeah. That's worse than any of the rest of this crap. If you have lived a life that has meaning, all the rest of it doesn't really matter. What matters is whether you leave something behind you that's going to make a difference for even one other person. And that's the, that, is the, that is the responsibility of every one of us. Mm -hmm. To leave something that is going to make the world a better place for at least one other human being. But it helps if you see all of us as human beings. For sure. Well, you've certainly left a legacy one for forever, Jane. And I thank you personally so much for your work because it, it I learned a lot from you over this year, learning about your work and just moving forward. And that's why I wanted to speak with you and and just let your voice be heard in 2021 and, and um, onward about well, being people. If you, if you do that, I don't have to worry about my legacy, do I? No. You That'll be your legacy. You take care of it. All right. Okay? All right? All right. <laughs> much. You take You're responsible. Go for it. Thank you for calling me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're most welcome. Bye now. Bye-bye.
Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Giving Heartbeat, where we make unsung heroes into everyday superheroes. Please be my hero and subscribe, download, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Naomi Charney for my beautiful cover art. Thanks to Chris Hogan for his theme music, Pure Magic, and to audio engineer extraordinaire, Don Sternacker at Mixolydian Studios. Please take action today to support nonprofits that connect with your passion. Be the change you want to see in the world. Until next time, the beat goes on. This is Donna Valente. Peace out. Peace out.